going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSD winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at therightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Welcome back to another podcast of The Right Scuff. Today we have one of the nicest people I've met here in Northern California. I've actually known him for many years. That is, we worked together on a few films, but it's nice to have him here in person. It's Richard Hems, and he has won three Academy Awards in his career. But I think, as I said, just as defining as that is, he's a nice guy, and he's with us today, and welcome, Richard. Thank you. Good to be here. Good. And uh, our podcast, we ask questions, and I'm just going to throw out a couple now. Um, in fact, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, well, as a kid, I wanted to be a truck driver, a very young kid. That never happened. Uh, and then I wanted to... Well, I'm not sure if I wanted to, but... Um, I, my, my father was a production accountant and he didn't like the direction I was going in, so he asked me what I wanted to do and I didn't really know. This was when I was about 13, 14. I thought about it for a while and I said, I think I could be a clapper boy because ah. I think I was a very shy and I didn't think much of myself, obviously, so I thought banging a piece of wood together was, you know, something I could handle. <laughs> So that was how it started. So literally in, in a production, you would actually run the slate. No, I never got that job. Oh. <laughs> what happened was we went down to the studio, uh, which in those days there were no film schools or anything. It was a notice board. And um, there wasn't any Clapper Boy jobs going, but we talked to somebody and said, well, there's a, uh, a job making tea. And if I was a tea boy, I would get in the union. And when I got in the union, I could transfer to the camera department. And the idea was I would eventually become a cameraman. That was the idea. Okay. And this was, what year was this? 1964. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So did you become a tea boy? I did. I was 16 years old and I was working on a film called uh, Battle of the Villa Fiorita. And uh, I made, it was near the end of the production. It was really kind of a... End of, the, end of the road thing. They were already in the uh, mixing stage. So um, I would make tea for the editing department. You know, the usual union rules in England is that, you know, sometime between 10.30 and 11, you'd make tea and 3.30 to 3, 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, and I just made tea. And, you know, a plate of biscuits for about, I don't know, six or eight guys. That's fantastic. And that was a union job. I got to love that. That, That's that's great. (laughs) Um, So that really hits then, of course, that's your first job in the the film business. Um, So then what happened from there? In other words, from T-Boy to supervising sound editor, that's a bit of a jump. Yeah. Well, 
what happened was these... Well, I was in the editing department doing this T-boy thing and um, I'm watching these guys edit and for some reason I became really intrigued by it. And so when that job was coming to a close, the position opened up on the Saint TV series with Roger Moore, the black and white ones at first, um, as uh, the second assistant editor. And um, I talked to a couple of people and the... There was a guy there who was working on a TV show called Gideon's Way, which I don't think was in America, uh, Irish guy, Pat Sullivan, I think, and he said that he would be willing to train me. So there was a room with two benches in it. His was one side, the saint was the other side, and he would do my job while I watched and I would, he would do his job while I watched, and for a week he did both sets of dailies. Wow. And then... Uh, I was on my own, but he was right there, so I could ask him anything as it went along. Wow, and how many years did you do that for? I think I did the same TV series for about 18 months. Right. And they were about one every 10 days, so, and, the, and three of those days were overlapped with second unit shooting, so it was very hectic for three of those eight days. Right. And then, so from, from, from there, did you stay with this, this, what was it, with Pat? Did you stay with him or did you? No, no, we were separate. He was just in the same room. And right. so I, I, I eventually, he left and uh, a guy named Julian Bendian came in to be the second assistant on uh, Gideon's Way. Uh, no, the Avengers. It had become the Avengers by then, the original Avengers with... Uh, well, Emma, well, that is Emma um, Diana, or Diana Diana Ross Diana, and Diana uh, Patrick... Diana Rigg, Diana Rigg yeah. right. Diana Rigg and pa- Patrick... McNee. McNee. Well, this guy came and uh, Julian and he was dressed entirely as Patrick McNee. He had a bowler hat, an umbrella, Czech sports jacket. You know, the, it looked exactly like him. And he was very effusive, wired guy and... Um, the dailies came in and um, I thought I was already doing my Saints dailies and he said to me, um, actually, Dickie, he called me Dickie, I don't really know, I can't quite remember how this goes. And in point of fact, when I started showing, it was clear that he actually knew nothing at all about the job, less than I did even when You're I started. You're kidding me. No, he totally, he totally balled his way into it, you know. There was a lot of BS. And I helped him and he, and he picked it up and we got through it and I did the same thing as Pat did for me. You know, I did the job for a couple of weeks and then he was off to the races. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I'll bet. And, of course, that, that show was on for like two or three years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then that was, did you go on to the next show or what, what, what no, kind of was the next No, I did the same step? TV series. The next step for me was uh, uh, a feature film called Mr. 10%, which was Charlie Drake, who was a British comedian, and it was about the theatre. The good thing about that show is it wasn't a very good film, actually, but the good news for me was that the picture editor was a guy named Jack Harris, who was probably, in his day, the number one film editor in England. Wow. By this time, he was about 80 he was really, really, he'd had a stroke. Oof. And so one of my main jobs was, you know, we would mark the film in those days with a white Chinagraph pencil. And because he'd had a stroke, his right hand didn't bend at all. And he would pick the pencil up, but, okay, you know, probably about half the time it was the wrong way around. So my main job was to take the pencil out of his hand, turn it around and put it in the right way around so he could mark the film with it. Wow. That was kind of, I literally sat next to him on the movie over doing that all day long. So I watched him edit. I, I, you know, I, I asked him why he did it and stuff like that. He was a fascinating guy, hilarious, you know. And, and then, again, of course, you were, work, were you working on magnetic film then? Or oh, what? yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. right. Wow. And in those days, the dailies were in black and white. 
with one or two test colour takes printed up. Really? So you go to dailies and you watch it in black and white and then they say one, one shot per major scene would be in colour just to see that everything was okay. Wow. So that, that was the way that we did it. And so I was, I was uh, syncing up the dailies and taking care of him and just having a great old time. I was going to say, but it sounds like a fan, fantastic time. Well, but how did you get here? <laughs> well, I went on to uh, various feature films after that. I was on location in Italy uh, in, my, in my mid-teens, you know, 17, 18. At 27, the business had kind of slowed down a bit uh, there was some economic problems, enormous power cuts in England at that time, and um, things were a bit slow, and uh, I wasn't doing so well myself. I was drinking a lot, ah. and I wasn't getting much in the way of work, so I decided to go to Australia. Oh, okay. <laughs> Change of scenery. <laughs> yeah. I decided I wasn't going to work in the film industry anymore on the plane over, but when I got there, I realised that I was severely lacking in funds to last much more than about a week. <laughs> and in a week I had spent the money I came with. I didn't have the money for a return ticket either. So I immediately went to the uh, ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Commission, like their BBC, if you like, and applied for a job and got a job as an assistant editor there and started working on, you know, documentaries and things. Somewhere in there, in those, in those days and at that time, it was 1974, they, the assistant editors did the sound on the documentaries. And I guess someone picked up on the fact that I seemed to know what I was doing. So I got moved over to the drama side of the things and um, started doing sound editing on, on those kind of shows. Got it. So you and, left documentaries and went yeah, over. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and people there didn't know about splitting tracks. They would butt a, a gunshot up against some dialogue and all kinds of You're things. You're kidding me. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. And so I, I was spending things out to five tracks and they thought, they thought I was very special. <laughs> and I'd never done it before, but I'd just seen other people do it, you know. Because <laughs> so, on the Saint TV series, what they did was um, uh, when I'd finished my dailies, that if I didn't have anything to do, I would get shoved with the folding department, the music department, the sound effects department, all kinds of things just to help out. So I, I got a really broad education in, in, in film editing. Well, little did you, know, did you know how well that was going to serve you? Wow, that's, that's really, really amazing. <laughs> so that went along until at a certain point I got put on a, uh, a dramatic uh, Ben Hall TV series about Australian Highwaymen and... Um, I was overwhelmed. Because of the way they worked on 16mm, I got myself into a bit of difficulty because I shot the Foley on three-track 35mm. Right. Thinking that I could edit, you know, each of those tracks and what I got was a combined 16mm mixed down and it was a mess. Had to be. And I got into a little state of anxiety and, long story short, I quit. They put me onto. It's, it's some of those funny things. I, I very, very rarely quit on anything in my life. That was the first time I quit and I was quite depressed about it. And, and in one of those quirky things that happened to me a lot in life, things went really well in that they came to me and said, well, don't leave, we'll make you a picture editor, which is <laughs> the strangest thing you can imagine. So then I moved to a different building and being a picture editor on this TV show that was basically like Siskel and Ebert but with an Australian guy. And um, my job was to take 
the films that they were going to talk about and meet with the director. Again, what a fantastic job. And we would pick the clips that we were going to show in this show. And all I was responsible for was the film part because the rest of it was all videotaped. Wow. So I started meeting these directors, one thing or another, and I met a guy who um, did a surfing movie, Crystal Voyager, I think it was. We did, we, you know, we went through it, and then he said to me at the end, you know, I have a big ranch up at Byron Bay, which is in New South Wales, beautiful area. He said, if you're ever up that way, go and stay at this house. And he gave me the address. That's great. Well, as it happens, a couple of weeks down the road, they put me on another show called Norman Gunston, which was a comedy, and I was not happy. Mm. I didn't get it. I didn't find it was funny, and, and I had the same pressure on me to, so I quit again. <laughs> and they said, well, don't quit. Take a leave of absence because, you know, you, being a government job, there's a lot of pensions and money that can come to you, so do that. So I left there and I got in my car and I went on the road and I drove the whole east coast of Australia in this old crate of a car, camping out, feeling very sorry for myself, very guilty about quitting, not, not knowing what was going to happen to me at all. And um, I had a fantastic time despite the, the kind of mood that I was in. I worked on a building site, which was very exciting for a 128-pound skinny white Englishman that couldn't wheel a wheelbarrow. <laughs> I became the building site kind of joke because I couldn't literally move a wheelbarrow full of cement over the ramp. I would always lose it. So, you know, I was kind of a laughing stock, but it was really fun at the same time. They were really nice guys. Uh -huh. This was all in the far north Queensland, which is basically subtropical, you know, very hot, very humid, rained every day. Crazy job. So much fun. Right. That went on for about uh, four or five months and then I, uh, I, tr I got to a point where I couldn't quite reach uh, a commune called Cape Tribulation where I was hoping to join all the hippies and um, do their thing and, and I, I had to go through, you know, rivers with crocodiles in it and stuff and it was crazy. It was crazy and, and I just got stuck basically in the mud and, and I, I managed to get my car out but I couldn't go any further. So I turned around and I came back and made it all the way back to Sydney and um, I started working with a guy named Billy Anderson who was a film editor but I worked with some stuff in Australia with him. That sort of went sour over some issue with a government documentary we were making. We lost that job and I decided I was going to um, just hang out for a while. Then I met this American woman who was with a, a friend of mine and I ended up being with her, not him, and we travelled to Tasmania and then over to New Zealand and then to Tahiti and then eventually in, ended up in L.A. You know, I'm just, I, I can't tell you how crazy my life has been because I'm not an aggressive go-get'em person, but life has handed me these amazing things. Like, you know, when I was in Australia, a guy called me on the phone and said, G'day, mate, how would you like to be an Australian citizen? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I said, do I have to give up my English one? He said, no. I said, what do I do? He said, just pay $10, swear your allegiance to the Australian flag and you, and, and you get a passport. So, of course, I did it. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> and I came to America and it was the same kind of thing. You know, I just I ended up with three passports, which I've never really taken advantage of, but I have them. Anyway, so I'm in America. I go and see a friend of my old roommates from England named Bruce, who's just got his first job as a director. And he said, you're going to cut my movie. Now, bear in mind, at this point, I haven't really cut anything in my life, picture-wise, at right, all. And right, right. 
nervous wreck. That went round and around and, you know, because I wasn't in the union and I, I was on a holiday visa and I was trying to dodge and weave out of all this stuff without really lying but just getting pushed, pushed and pushed. And again, on my nerves at this point, I'm very jangly, I'm drinking too much and my, and my nerves are shot, basically. And uh, finally what happened was I got called to a meeting on the Friday before the first day of shooting on Sunset Boulevard where I now had an edit room and equipment all set up. And the producer, an Englishman, uh, announced that the, the finances had pulled out. Oh. And you imagine there's probably two or 300 crew members really ticked off and they're all booing and yelling and he shuts them all down. He says, however, they have not closed the bank account so I'm going to issue you all with two weeks' pay and I suggest strongly that you cash it today. <laughs> <laughs> so I got handed a cheque for $3,000 when I hadn't had more than $200 to my name in years. This is 1970. <laughs> and you had not cut one frame of picture. 74, sorry. Right? Oh, 76, yeah. I hadn't cut a frame of anything yet, yeah. <laughs> and I've got all this money, so... I stayed with this girl in LA for a little while, but things weren't working out. I just, I, it was, she was very different when she was with her family. She was in a very close-knit Jewish family and they all wanted to see us every day, you know, aunts and uncles and everybody. And as I say, I was a serious drinker and I couldn't fit my drinking into the way they lived. So I went back to England, got back to England, started doing a bit of a boom operation on the Avengers TV series, which miraculously was still going. Got myself back on my feet. And uh, I started um, working as an assistant sound editor, not picture anymore, for a guy named Alan Soans who had done some Bond movies. And uh, we did The Greek Tycoon and The Passage, I think, which was a, a World War II movie uh, with Malcolm McDowell in it. And so I, I learned a lot about sound from him. And he was a big drinker too, so we had a, we had a ton of fun. <laughs> And then my first wife, she wasn't then, but she, the, the American girl basically came to England and we got together again and we got married there. But after two winters, I realised that after Australia, I couldn't handle this cold weather in England anymore. And so we, we got married, basically, not because of uh, we wanted to be married. We loved each other. But we didn't want to be married. That was kind of uncool in that era to be married. But we got married because, you know, we, she wanted to work in London. And uh -huh. so she could work in London. And then when we decided to leave and go back to California, I would be able to work in California. Or well, that was never on the cards. Again, it was one of those things that just fortuitous. We left and we went back to L.A. And in L.A., we were house-sitting for a sister. And then I did a show called 20th Century Foxes, which was uh, 1978. So tell the show, right? yeah. No, it was a movie. Oh, it was Adrian Lyne. I can't remember the star, but it was about young girls in the valley, mm -hmm. basically. And I was the second assistant editor on that for a guy named Peter Hollywood, who was an English editor. Uh, and uh, I did that for a while. And I met a guy named Ned Kopp on it, who was a production manager. He worked in San Francisco. And I said, well, I'm going to San Francisco as soon as we finish this job because uh, that's where we're going to live. Because I had told my first wife that I did not want to be in L.A. anymore. We, and she said, you'll love San Francisco. That was the premise that I left England, was that we were going to go to San Francisco. So... Uh, this guy, Ned Cobb, says, when you get there, give me a call. I'll get you some work. So, again, more wow. super luck. Yeah. And then we drove up to San Francisco. We got an apartment in San Francisco. Um, I was staying in Mill Valley with her friend uh, initially. Then we got our own apartment in San Francisco. Um, I couldn't get any work. She was working. She had a job. I couldn't, I couldn't get any work. 
Uh, so, um, and this was 78, eight. 79, actually. I moved, yes, early okay. 79 was right. when we drove up to San Francisco. Okay. And so I called this guy, Ned Karp, and he said, well, I don't really have anything going on right now. And then he called a little bit later, you know, maybe a week later and said, how would you like to be a night watchman? I said, what do you mean? I'm not really the strong arm type. He said, no, no, it's purely technical technicality. We have to have a guard. There's guards there already, but we need a specific guard that will will stay by the cameras overnight for, for the week that we're shooting a commercial. So I said, yeah, I can do that. So I got my sleeping bag and I went and slept by the cameras and he paid me an absolute fortune for it. I mean, it was a really nice gesture. I could, I could use the money and he paid me, I don't know, $100 a night to just sleep. <laughs> and also he hired my wife as a continuity girl, which on a commercial is, you know, wasn't too complicated. She's not, she, she knew what to do in terms of, you know, just, they just said write down as much of the information about where glasses are, how full they were, that sort of thing. Right. And um, so they did that. And, um, and from there I, I got, I got some, some more work from him. And then I got a call from England saying that, did I know that Les Wiggins and Les Hodgson were the sound editors on Apocalypse Now? And I had never met either of these gentlemen, but I knew of them. They were legends. So they said, go down and talk to them. So I went and talked to them. They took me to the pub. <laughs> we, we had a lot to drink. And, and the next thing, and I was hired on the only job available because, they were again, they were basically near the mix. I got hired on the Apocalypse Now documentary that eventually became Hearts of Darkness. And it was a crazy job. They had like 60 hours of 16-millimeter footage and no clapperboards and just wild sound and some of it was you know, MOS silent and some of it was sync. And I I would just sit there running the 16 millimeter film on the chem with wearing with running an anagra with this with a quarter inch tape on it. And I would just make notes. And then every now and again there'd be like a you know a, a moment where I go, oh wait a minute, that sounds like it would go with that picture I I was running yesterday. Wow. And I'd go and I'd find a sync point and I'd work backwards and forwards and that until I lost the thread and then I'd go back to listening to it. So it was a quite a long job. I was oh, there for months doing talk, that. Talking about needle in the haystack yeah, on a daily really basis. Well that's amazing. Now was where was that? Was that at uh, Francis Place or was that a yeah, that was the American Zoetrope okay. in nineteen seventy-nine, which was on Pacific Avenue and Columbus, right next to the Little Fox Theater that they owned, and that's where the mixing room was. And they had three floors of editing rooms. There were fifty-five or sixty people on Apocalypse Now, and they were all over the place. And I knew everybody. I got to meet everybody in San Francisco. We <laughs> have Francis Coppola, Philip Kaufman, everybody right the way down to the apprentices on those shows. And and we 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 had a great time. We had a great time. That went on for a while and then eventually we got um, let go. We were trying to do two things at once. Francis said he wanted a really arty documentary and a producer who kept coming when Francis wasn't there said he wanted a biff bam snappy commercial documentary. Oh boy. So I said Stuck to Leslie, who was the editor, why don't we make some 35 millimeter reductions of key scenes from the main movie and then link the footage we have for those scenes into it? And then we'll have a nice snappy commercial. Biff, bam, thank you, ma'am, 
uh, uh, documentary. And then when Francis wants to see it, we'll just lock those pieces out and we can quickly, you know, in an hour or so, yeah. put it back to in the, you know, the creative documentary that we really wanted to work on. And one day, of course, the inevitable happened. That we, we were told we wanted we, that he wanted to, uh, the producer wanted to see the commercial version, and um, he got busy. And Francis sent over Werner Herzog to see the documentary. Oh boy! <laughs> and of course, my editor made up a, a, a dry cleaning emergency that he had to go and take care of. So and left who was me left the holding room. the bag? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, Lord. And Werner, oh. I ran it for Werner. What can you do? And, and he turned to me and he said, this is the work of a coward. <laughs> he started to go, he started to really go out off on me. And I said, well, actually, I'm only the assistant. I really, I don't have anything to do with the, the putting together of this. And then we got fired, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and it just so happened that the guy who rented this uh, movie out of a flatbed for that particular show um, was a guy named Gene Finley that got hired on the movie called The Island with Michael Caine about the pirates in the oh, Caribbean I'm, and all that I thing. know that well. I did the foley on that down in L.A. But, okay, but, so you're probably yeah. a member of all this. Oh, and we did all this out of a motel in, in Mill Valley and at a certain point we had to go down to L.A. at Nick's. And the union representative came up to meet us all and said that, you know, you can't really work in that, being in the union. And, and I was like, well, this is a very gracious lady was telling us stuff. It made total sense to me. But um, these guys basically told us, you know, go away. They weren't interested in being in their union. I was kind of shocked. But they, and, and it led to a very short, uncomfortable period in L.A. <coughs> where we were basically kicked out of town after several days. Wow. And, and, you know, that was just one of those things. But it was a very guerrilla-type operation in that we loaded all our movieolas and our equipment and our film, our tracks, cue sheets, everything into a huge semi and drove to L.A. with all of us on board it. <laughs> and, then, and then we got out at, uh, it was at Warner's, I think, and we just set up in our editing rooms and I think a week later we got told to get out of Dodge. <laughs> So a couple of people stayed to finish the film, but we were all laid off. Yeah, it was Warner's, actually. Uh, wow. Crazy stories. Huh? I love these stories. So, so then from there... Um, from there, I got hired by Dead Cop again to work on uh, Alan Parker's Shoot the Moon as picture assistant again for Jerry Humphrey. That was fantastic. We were on E Street in San Rafael, which is now an optician's. There was a school there right on um, 3rd and E, 4th and... Between 3rd and 4th on E Street, right. I think. No, was it E Street? Yes, it was E Street. And so we had this school. We had a, we set up a, a screening room for dailies. We had editing rooms. We had all sorts of production mm. things there. And it was a wonderful experience. They, they bought some property in, near where Skywalker is now on Nicasio Valley Road. And they, uh, they moved a, a Victorian house in San Francisco. They cut it into five pieces and moved it. They had to raise power lines and all kinds of things. They reassembled the house in the cleft of a valley overlooking Nicasio Reservoir. Wow. And built the house all out and they shot everything in the house. And then at the end of the movie, uh, the art director. Art director, sure replaced the duck pond with a swimming pool and built, put all the plumbing in properly and it became Alan Parker's own home. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to That's do it. That's the way to make movies. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so he got a great house out of it. And um, that was a really enjoyable, enjoyable film. I had, I had the best time. 
So then from here, well, let's kind of push forward to how'd you get into Skywalker, so to speak? Or did, did that happen that way? Or My first contact with Skywalker was on that film. A couple of things happened. I designed the film editing benches for Shoot the Moon and I had them made out of white formica, you know, like a, like a white glossy finish. And I had the English-style trim uh, bins cut in either side of the synchroniser. And I had lids made for those so that you could be an American bench or an English bench, whichever you wanted, and the rewinds on the end. I had a lot of things that I'd always wanted over the last 15 years in an editing bench but could never have. Like it had a little indentation cut in, in where you stand so you could be much closer. <laughs> that, and then you just sort of put splicer on the ledge. Was, That's great. And... Um, Howie Hammerman, who was running uh, Skywalker then as uh, their technical guy, uh, editorial department, came over and saw it and asked me if he could copy it for Skywalker. And so Skywalker got two of those benches in every one of their edit rooms. No kidding. So that was the first kind of notice that I got with somebody who knew something. So you were actually the designer of yeah. those editorial yeah. benches. Yeah, yeah. So Howie Haverton? Hammerman. Okay, Howie Hammerman and the, the benches which were, <laughs> well, well, I guess Richard Himmis Mark Ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's how you got a kind of a, a name, if you will, or at least noticed by Skywalker. Yeah, and then there was a screening at uh, George Lucas's house for... Um, oh, Chariots sure. of Fire. Chariots of Fire, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there was a screening at George's house for Chariots of Fire and I got invited. And so I went to that and obviously met George and met various other people. And that was another little stepping stone. I got an interview with Ben Burt. And at that time, he was working in an office on, uh, right there next to Comforts that we passed this morning. Right, right. And that was their office. And I went in there and I met with Ben and um, I was very nervous. And Ben said he was going out to record the eclipse of the sun. And I didn't laugh because I thought, you know, anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't want to make the wrong move. But, um, uh, you know, for example, on uh, um, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Wynne Ryder re recorded the sound of um, the handkerchief being dropped. So, you know, the eclipse of the sun is just as absurd, but, but totally possible. And, uh, I didn't get that. It was Empire Strikes Back, mm -hmm. I think. But we, we met and then I moved on to various other features, the right stuff, I think. And then after that, I was hired after being the first assistant uh, on that show, I was hired as a supervising sound editor on it. It was very low budget. And I hired a good friend of mine, Tim Holland, and the two of us basically did the show. And Gloria Borders was my assistant. No kidding. Wow. And from there, Gloria went on to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and she hired me as a dialogue editor. Right. And that started the whole... That's really when things started then, yeah. if you will, at Skywalker. And then, yeah. then I'm going to jump in. And so, of course, you worked on Fight Club, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan. Are there any stories or moments from any of those films that are like, gosh, that was kind of fun or unusual or different? Or if not, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, the right stuff was was uh, was an amazing thing. It was in a, in a in a warehouse in South of Market, San Francisco. There were no designated edit rooms. All the all the section all the room was sectioned off with uh, moving blankets. Really, that would separate you know so, uh, so one edge from another. But they only reached to about two feet from the floor, so you could see people's feet and stuff, and you could hear everything was going on. And there was about. 50 editors, sound editors on that film. It was huge, huge number of people. 
And uh, David Parker, who's a well-known mixer, was the, uh, a recordist, effects recordist on that. And he and I would do things like try and do it. There was a K-Fog, I think, and K-San. K-San was having a competition for the best version of Louis Louie. <laughs> Louis Louie, you know. Right. right. And so he and I were goofing around trying to do that and at the same time going out and recording stuff. And uh, there's one, we wanted the sound for the cockpit release for the, somebody ejecting from the plane. And so we got my little Renault Le Car that I had at the time and we went down the freeway in San Francisco at about 90 miles an hour, as fast as it would go, and then when he was ready to record, we could hear the air rushing. I turned the engine off, so it's just rushing air, and then I just flipped the sunroof open it basically just went bam, you know, it just exploded and then the air got loud and we used that sound for for the cockpit release in, in the movie. <laughs> and stuff like that all the time, doing stuff like that. Rare, you know, seat of the pants sound effects recording was really fun. Well, it really paid off because, of course, that film went on to win an Academy Award. Is it for you, when you work on a live action versus an animated film, is there anything that you like or don't like between the two? or is it? Oh, yeah. Something about the way animation is, is it's, nothing's really quite real. You know, the footsteps aren't really touching the ground. It, it just, I don't know how to explain it, but I've always been not comfortable with it. And so when Gary asked me to do Toy Story, I turned it down. Wow. To go and do... Um, yeah. Of course, that was Gary Rydstrom. Yeah, yeah, Gary so, Rydstrom, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, and instead I went and did Robin Williams. Uh, so I, you worked on Jumanji? I worked on Jumanji instead, yeah, and... Um, and, and I've avoided animated films ever since because I just, I'm not comfortable with it. I was really excited to work on Cars, which I didn't do, the Pixar movie, but when I saw how difficult it was for them to try and use real car sounds on the cars and how poorly it went, I reinforced that desire to avoid it. <laughs> like, pass. Yeah. All right. And well, then when we did um, Ready Player One, which is the last film I worked on, I avoided the car. I think Gary was really mad at me, but I just realised after I tried to cut a few things that these cars look real, but it's not. It's basically animated. And so I was like, I don't want to do this. This is not comfortable, it's not fun, and I'm not happy with the results. So I, I had Addison Teague did the cars. But that's but you really hit upon something interesting, though, because you said Ready Player One. Of course, that was a book turned into a movie. So... But outside of, uh, as you said, that little animation thing, do you think there's a certain expectation or pressure to create an even more fantastical world to have the movie stand up to the book, do you think? or In general or Ready Player One specifically? I'd say Ready Player One specifically. Yeah, I think so. I think it was, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous book and it's a real challenge to try and make something as, as vibrant as that. So, yeah, I think they were trying to do the best they could to make it as energetic as it could be. Did Stephen say anything to you in particular to that he would want you to for sure cover or not or just kind of let you do your thing or...? We pretty much got a free reign, yeah. He, we've, we were very lucky, you know, our track record with him has been very good and so we, we were given a lot of... Uh, a lot of leeway. Not, not, not that they, 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 there can't be changes. And, the, and Ready Player was one where we definitely didn't hit it out of the park first time out. He had certain things he wanted changed, and that's fine. You know, it's, it's great, though. Great working yeah, relationship. I, would you say, though, that's not, is, is that not a mark of a good director, though, too, that they, you know, you present what you have and they say, you know, I, I just want to tune this a little bit. I want to do that to really get something that achieves their vision. And that, I would think, for you feels good. And, yeah. and, and you know, you get... Yeah, absolutely. The trust is so much, so much more. 
enjoyable than, you know, the, the nervous first-time director who wants to basically, you know, you go back and reinvent the wheel. You have to show them the way they want it to be and why it doesn't work and then you go on to do it the way it does work and that's twice as much work. So it's something I've not at my my later years here, I'm not much interested in doing that anymore. I'm trying to stay away from that. I, I hear you. Now, is there any... Just if we're going to pick a moment or a sound, or is there anything like in your career? Is there any one thing like God? I really love the fact that I did that sound, or I worked in that movie. Is there just any one moment you think, God, that was just really cool? I'm really happy about that, or, or is it all that way? No, I think Private Ryan stands out. The, okay. all, all the opening of the uh, the landing craft coming in, and uh, all the way up the beach, I cut most of that. Didn't do the gun specifically, but everything else. And uh, all the end of the film with the aeroplanes and the uh, tanks and whatnot was the same thing. And a lot of those sound effects I gathered from CineSound, a British library that I would draw from from time to time. And a lot of what happened is in, in Saving Private I think, was, was drawn from listening to those early, early sound effects that the quality might have been poor by today's standards, but it fit the film perfectly. And it felt real. I mean, that was, I, I, I remember seeing that and just viscerally being almost pulled underwater like he was, you know, uh, when he was over the side of the landing craft. And just, and of course, there again, too, like, you know, we're above water, then we go below the water and everything drops out as it would sonically, which, you know, it's a wonderful, it's an incredible moment. So, yeah. wow, there you go. He's like I said, there's your incredible moment. And all, those, many all those motors from the landing craft was all from that, that tap period. It was from that. And a lot of the stuff in the background was original. There was one particular thing that kind of gave us our clue as to what, how we should do it, and that was an original bombardment of a French village, a real one, that they recorded. And it, it starts and the bombardment's always under, already underway and it runs for like five minutes and it never lets up and then they cut the tape. And it was just insane. It was just like... You know, bam, bam, boom, 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 bam, 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 just nonstop. And we went, oh, my God. Because, you know, we were thinking like normal war movies, you have a bomb um, here, a few machine gun bullets there. This was just nonstop. And so wow. we decided to go that way and do that mayhem you know, when, when, when it was appropriate and just keep it going. And that was, uh, and that, that and, of course, Stephen's point of view that the whole thing was from a victim's eye view rather than, most war wounds where you're with the guys who were doing the shooting. This right. was kind of about what it's like to be on the other side. Right. And those two things made it really quite terrifying to watch. Absolutely. I, I, it was incredible. And, and then, you know, of course, part of the reason, if not the reason for the podcast, besides having wonderful chats with people like you, is there any advice you'd have for kids that want to get into the film business today? Anything you might think like, well, this might be helpful or not helpful, just anything that comes to your mind. Well, I, I get this, ask this question a lot and, and, of course, the business has changed so much that I really don't know how on earth people get started. I think film school's obviously good if you can get it, you know, any uh, knowledge you can get organised. Uh, I think you've got to be prepared to work for free or close to it on, on things to get, you know, you just got to meet people, get involved and trust in... Uh, serendipity and fate, which, as I said before, a lot of my life has been about absolutely ridiculous coincidences allowing me to, you know, go in directions I would never have even dreamed of. But what's interesting to me, if I can put words in your mouth for a second, you're open to it. In other words, you thought, oh, okay, let me try that. So 
that might be something that uh, the audience might go, oh, maybe, uh, you know, I've always said if somebody comes up to you and says, boy, you really take the greatest photographs, or people give you a lot of unsolicited praise, well, maybe there's something to that. And then, now here's the last thing, uh, almost last thing. If you could go back in the time machine, would there be any advice you'd give yourself back when you were, let's say, 13, 16, 18, that you'd want to tell yourself then to know for now, or would you not? I regret that I wasn't confident. I mean, I was an assistant for 20 years, you know. I've been doing it for 55 years, but my growth has not been fast or enormous, which I don't regret, but I, you know, I wonder if I had spent a bit more time writing screenplays, if I had tried my hand at directing, what could I have done? but I'm a very introverted... Some people would think that's laughable because when I'm at work amongst the people, I'm loud, I'm noisy, I'm outrageous. But when I'm at a party and I don't know people, I'm very shy. So, And I grew up in a fairly volatile alcoholic home and so my self-esteem has always been very low. I, 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 to this day, I can't believe there's three Oscars on my shelf at home. And, and I, of course, I think it's all about Gary Reister and Ben Burt and I, I'm just, I just got dragged along for the ride. It's only when I got the third one, I thought, well, I must be doing something right. <laughs> oh, I, That's I, kind I, of how it is. I dare say you've done an amazing amount right and, and you know, <laughs> and you are a wonderful human being. Uh, you're just a wonderful person. I'm grateful that I can say that, you know, you, you took the time to talk to us today and, and you know, mention what you mentioned and hopefully the, the kids out there listening will, will, will take that to heart. Like, you know, maybe have a little more confidence in yourself. Not that, you know, that's something that's critical of what you would did in your life, but you said that's something you would tell them. And then uh, be open to things, you know, what might be and, and just try it. Yeah. As I said, early in my career, I was focused on being a picture editor uh, and I wanted to, you know, be uh, a cameraman before that, all visual stuff, right? And um, I end up in sound, and my career didn't really turn off, uh, turn turn on until I started cutting sound, and then my career rocketed immediately. I, it wasn't very long before I was, uh, you know, supervising sound editor. It's just been um, astronomical. And a woman I was dating once said, "Well, that's obvious from what you've told me about your life." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Well, you told me when you were a kid, you're." Father bought a Grundig tape recorder and you went around recording birds because I was very interested in bird sounds. And she said, and you told me that you rigged up your dad's World War II RAF leather helmet with the speakers in it and ran wires from your bedroom down the outside of the house and plugged it in back of the old valve radio so you could listen to Radio Luxembourg where they played in the mid-50s the earliest rock and roll you could hear. And she kept coming up with examples knowing, oh, my God. Wow. So... I was, what my point of saying that is if you're trying to get in the business, don't set yourself parameters in any one place you're going to work because you may be much better at something else that you don't even know. You know, well, things happen. That's you know? good. That's, thank you for that advice because, again, we just want, you know, anybody who's interested in getting into this field to, to hear what you say, which is, you didn't know that was necessarily going to be the path. In fact, look where you went when you got into sound. All of a sudden, wow, off you went. And it's been a great ride and it continues to be so. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while, people have questions like they go, gosh, yeah, yeah, Richard was great. Why didn't you ask him this question? So if we get something like that, may I ask that of you? And, and then we can maybe, you know, write back to the person or tell Yeah, them. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no problem. 
Well, from Sarah and myself, uh, we want to say, Richard, thank you so much for being who you are. Um, and uh, it's, really, it's really a treat for me to, to see you around the ranch and, uh, and to enjoy you as a person and your work. And uh, thank you very much. Likewise, I'm sure. Thank you, folks, too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Right Scuff podcast. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube and iTunes and please leave us five stars on iTunes. It really helps us out. Give us any comments or questions you have on Twitter or you can email us at the right scuff podcast at gmail.com. Lastly, thank you so much to Toivo, a Finnish fan of John's who has been helping us edit the sound in this podcast. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye.